Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we're doing something a bit different. Early this year, we held our first in-person annual Innovative Executives League Summit with an amazing slate of leaders sharing their experiences and perspectives on innovation and leadership. And we wanted to be able to share some of that with our podcast audience as well. So we pulled together highlights from three of the day's presentations. First up, we have Gail Wilkinson, founder and managing partner of Vitalize Venture Capital, with an overview of today's trends in angel investing and venture capital. Next, we have Steve Rubinow, director of the Institute for Professional Development at DePaul University's Jarvis College of Computing and Digital Media. He'll be talking about the increasing criticality of continuous learning. And last and absolutely not least, we have Atit Adhikari, Chief Operating Officer of ShopRunner, talking about how teams innovate without losing focus. So I didn't learn what venture capital was until I was 28 and I started my first VC firm when I was 29. So there's always time to catch up. And first... I want to just give you an overview of what this landscape looks like because we hear about it, but unless you are in it day in and day out, it might be helpful just to do quick definitions to get us started. So private equity is anything that's not in the public markets. Venture capital is the very early part of private equity. So you might have heard like leverage buyout and lower middle market. Venture capital is a $330 billion portion of private equity that is startup companies and the VCs are investing at the very earliest stage. An angel is a person that invests in the very earliest part of venture capital called angel investing. So that's just an asset class, it's like venture capital, but these are individuals who are writing really small checks into the very earliest part of venture capital. So it's private equity, venture capital, angel investing is how I like to think about it. And then a group is just a number of people who are angels who work together. All right, so if you're a founder and you're raising money, there's lots of ways to do it, friends and family, crowdfunding, angels, angel groups, and then VCs. So as I mentioned, VC is $330 billion. When I started Irish Angels, it was under $50 billion. So the industry has just really blown up in the last 10 years, which is crazy. And then when we think about the early stage, so once again, angels, very early VC, back in 2012, it's just shy of one. And now angels four, 10 years later. So lots more activity, not just at all stages of VC, but also at the early stage. And then there's something we need to talk about called accredited investor. So today, angels tend to be what are called accredited per the SEC, which means you've made at least 200K of income for the last two years as a single person, or 300K of income for the last two years as a couple, or you have a million dollars in assets outside of your primary residence. There's a couple other ways to be accredited, but those are the two primary ones. And we know that there's 14 million people in the US, so only 11% of households, but hardly anybody does angel investing. The last data that I found was 300K. I'm sure it's higher now, but it's still, it's probably like 5% of the accredited population is actually investing in these deals. And at Vitalize, we also let non-accredited invest. And so there's a ton of people who are not accredited, obviously 90% of households in the US, some portion of them are interested in this asset class. So I'm a huge advocate 
of doing angel investing. Personally, I have stopped putting money into the public markets and I only do private deals at this point, but I have access to interesting deals. And my goal is that when I'm 60 or 70 or however old I am when I retire, I wanna help a lot more people get access to this industry. I want diversity of check writers. I want to make sure that there are no barriers for people and anybody who wants to do angel investing can do it. So that's what we will talk about today. All right, so why should you angel invest? Lots of reasons, and this is very personal. So I think angels are some of the coolest people in the world because they want to help founders. A lot of times they do this because they love it so much and the returns are icing on the cake. When I think about why I do it, I want to diversify outside of the public markets. I'm really glad that I put most of my money last year into the private equity instead of the publics, for example. There's something called qualified small business stock. So if you hold a qualifying company for over five years, you don't pay any taxes on it. And after being in this industry for 10 years, I'm finally getting some checks back on some of that stuff. And it's a huge deal when you don't have to pay your 30 or 35% on some nice size checks. A lot of people want to do angel investing to learn. It's fun. They get to see cool stuff. They get to help founders. Some people want to get into VC, and this is a great way to start just doing deals. And then, once again, have fun. So I teach this webinar on how to get started because this is a black box for a lot of people. And I want to preface this by saying, only angel invest what you can light on fire. I'm not up here to say, I think you should put a bunch of your money into angel investing if you can't really afford to lose it, because that would be very bad. So remember, only angel invest what you can light on fire. But here's how you get started. You wanna figure out how much can you deploy? And then how active or passive do you wanna be? Next, like what do you care about? And then you wanna learn about what you care about. And then you gotta start seeing deals. So join some syndicates or figure out how you're gonna actually start to see what you care about. And then you just start. You wanna write checks. And from my perspective, this is a cyclical thing. So once you invest, it may be five to 10 years before you see any of that money. It will likely be up to 10 years before you see any of that money. And if you start when you're as young as possible, you can have multiple cycles and that money hopefully will compound if you are doing it, doing it right. So we're gonna walk through an example. All right, before we do that, portfolio theory, it's just the idea of being diversified. So let's say you have a friend who's starting a business and they're like, hey, can you invest $25,000 into my startup? Totally fine, but remember, if you only do that one deal and it doesn't go anywhere, you just lit your money on fire. But if you take that 25K and you put it into five deals of $5,000 each, hopefully one of them returns 50,000 and you just doubled your money. Even if the other ones go to zero, because you had a portfolio of a number of deals, you're more likely to get the returns that you're looking for. So when I angel invest personally, I'm hoping that all of my money will 5X. So if I put $100,000 in over a number of years, I'm hoping that at some point in that cycle, I get $500,000 back. And in that cycle, I can put that money in and I hope that once again, it 5Xs. So that's, that's what I personally think of. Some people might say I'm looking for 2X. Some people might say I'm looking for 3X. I know angels feel it for 100X. It really just depends on what your personal you know, goals are with this asset class. But from my perspective, you should invest in at least one fund that has at least 15 companies in it. So you're investing in someone like me who can then go and make sure you've got that portfolio of diversification, or you do at least 15 deals on your own. It's really important to at least do 15 deals in a three-year period. So you should be doing about five deals a year in order to hit that portfolio style returns. Okay, so an example. Let's say you make $200,000 a year, you pay in taxes and expenses over the year 130,000, so you've got 70K left that's your investable cash for that year. 
So maybe today you're putting some of it in a bank account, putting some of it in the public markets, some of it in some special like college savings accounts or what, whatever is important to you. You may decide at some point, I want to take part of that and put it into private deals. So do angel investing. In this example, I've said, all right, so 25K of my 70K I want to invest. So I'm doing about a third of my investable cash into angel deals. So remember, this is step one. How much can you even invest? You got to do this math. So this person can invest. They've decided I feel comfortable investing 25 because I can still put 45K into other stuff. And I feel like this gives me good exposure. So then the next step is, okay, I know I'm doing 25 a year. I know I need to hit at least 15 or 25 over three or five years. So I need to do five deals a year. So I know I'm looking for five checks at $5,000. So this is the math that this person did to now say, okay, I know in this year I need to do about five deals at 5,000. And I know I need to do about a deal every two months. So you've got a plan going in before you go back to these other steps, which is, all right, now I know what I'm doing. Now it's figuring out what these other things are. So for me personally, I invest in all kinds of stuff. I have to think it's fun. I have to find it to be interesting. So I've done Habit, which is a face sunscreen. Because I personally believe we all need to wear more sunscreen. This is a really great CPG product that I think will will be very big. I've invested in circular shoes. I've invested in future work software. I've invested in a baby changing table from a founder in Chicago. I've invested in all kinds of stuff. So I have to think personally, it's cool. And then for me, I really lean towards investing in women and people of color and other underrepresented groups. So when I look at my data, about 90% of the 45 deals I've done are in underrepresented founders. That's important to me. For you guys, you might say, I love healthcare. I'm going to do all healthcare because I know it. I love it. That's what I want to focus on. Or you might say, I care about Chicago. I'm only doing deals in Chicago. This is extremely unique to each of us. So there's not a right answer here. Just what moves you if you want to get into this space? And then it's just starting to like learn about it. So if you want to be really active and you have the deal flow, like maybe you know a bunch of founders, you can do what are called direct deals and invest right into the company. But... If you're like me, like I, I'm a member of three or four different groups. I like to see deal flow coming in from other people. And that helps me not to have to actively go and seek it out. So of my 45 deals, I've done some through Irish Angels, some through a firm called Chicago Early, which I suggest all of you think about joining. I do some through our group, which is called Vitalize Angels. And then there's a few other ones that I can share at the end. So I know that every year I'm doing, I personally do five to 10 a year. 5,000 each. That's all I do. My range is 1,000 to $10,000. Almost all of what I do is five. 20% of your stuff is going to return 80%. Half is going to go to zero. Hopefully you get a couple big winners. So in my 45, like I'm hoping I get three in there that are 100x plus, and then I get really good returns. That's what I'm going for. If you're like, okay, I want 25 deals and I want a 10x, you're really looking for a handful to be 10x plus or you're looking for one to be 100x. That's how the math works for this stuff. And you have to be comfortable writing a bunch of checks because a lot of it's going to go to zero. And it's painful. It is very painful when they go to zero. But, you know, for me, I was early in the mom project and now it's doing really well. And assuming it continues to do well, I'm going to make a lot of money on that deal. So, like, that's how you kind of get through the hurt because if you did it right and you did enough deals, you'll have hopefully some of those that are doing well. So in 10 to 12 years, you're looking for a three to five X most of the time. How does that correspond to IRR? 
it's somewhere between 20 and 40 percent. And the stock market tends to be over time 10 to 12 percent. But once again, you have to have portfolio theory, you have to have good deal flow, and you have to write enough checks in order to get this kind of return. We're in a really interesting time. This is actually the perfect time to get started angel investing if you have the stomach for it. Because remember, $330 billion, huge growth in venture, huge growth in angel investing. It's, it's quadrupled in the last 10 years. But now there's all these players in the space. There's all this money and the markets have just tanked, right? So we've got all this inflation and we know that public markets, especially the tech stocks are way down. So about in November, we see the markets start to come back. And this line here is tech stocks. So it's way down. Publics are down since January. Tech stocks even down further. What that means is that at the late stage of private equity and into the public sector, technology stocks, which is primarily where venture capital invests, have lost a bunch of value. And so right now there's a ton of fear in the market. I'm not allowed to talk about if I was raising a fund, but if I were raising a fund, a lot of the limited partners, these are people who invest in my fund, have gone away. 80% dried up overnight. People are scared. They're not putting money in. But a bunch of VCs just raised a lot of capital. And the late stage VCs just lost a lot of value. So they're like, hmm, we need to invest at lower prices. So there's this trickle down effect happening right now in the industry very quickly where the prices are being fixed rapidly. So a deal we might have done two years ago, the same deal today is probably going to be valued at you know 30% less than what it was a few years ago, which is good. And I would argue that today it's priced right. It was inflated a few years ago. So we've seen this kind of correction happen extremely, extremely fast right now, which um, to me indicates a lot of opportunity. So I'm glad that I have a fund too started and I'm able to deploy cash right now because I think that with fewer kind of bad actors in the VC space, the deals that are on the table will be better. All right. And then here's another look from a multiple perspective. So I always think about forward-looking multiples. So back in like 2014, the median forward-looking revenue multiple for software companies was about five or six. And then last year it got up to about 16 and now it's back down to six. So what does that mean? Back to our example. If that company was worth $1 billion, they would need several hundred million dollars of revenue to be worth a billion dollars. But last year, they only needed way less than 100 million to be worth a billion dollars. And that's what happened in the market. A whole bunch of that was just gone. But when we think about valuing stuff, we've always used a five to seven X multiple because it's real. That is tangible. This stuff was all froth. Um, And so a lot of deals were done, angel on up to growth in this period. And those companies are going to struggle because they were done at prices that were too high. So once again, interesting time to get into the game because we're back to normal right now in terms of fundamentals of the market. And we're seeing that in in these things like forward-looking multiples. This is the only chart I can find on VC activity because it's usually like lagging a quarter. But in Q1, you can see that across the board, these are all stages of VC. All the activity is down from a dollar's perspective. That means that VCs realize that the market... Not doing great, a lot of fear. I'm gonna sit on the sidelines for a second, which once again is good for the industry as all because this is what's helping everything to correct right now. Obviously I'm watching the macro environment. And if you follow this stuff, there's a couple big firms called Sequoia and there's another one called Y Combinator and they've sent notes out to founders recently saying, this is a really bad situation and try and keep cash for three years and the apocalypse is coming. I think that they're overestimating and being a little dramatic about what's coming. 
However, it's important for founders to be really prudent right now and you as potential angels to think about this. So founders should be focused on revenue growth. That's always the number one thing. Hands down, doesn't matter market cycles. They should be talking to their customers to see what's changed because customers have to conserve their cash right now. And if their needs are changing, should the founder be thinking differently about their product? They should be focusing on what's core to their business. A lot of founders are like, oh, I want to do this and this and this and this. But I'm really looking for founders that have like one true North Star and they're so focused on making that thing happen. They have a lot better shot of getting to success. They should be spending wisely, cutting things that are not needed from an expense perspective. They should hire slowly. All these things are important all the time, but especially in down cycles like we're in right now. I tell our founders to monitor your cash balance once, at least monthly. When you get to six months or less, raise your red flag because I need to come in and we need to figure out how to help you. And then finally check in on your team from a morale perspective. So that's just quickly kind of what I see in the market right now. And this is the counsel that I'm giving my founders. What we're going to talk about here, it's a collection of thoughts, not really too many answers, but a collection of thoughts on challenges and opportunities when it comes to learning across the broadest spectrum that we can imagine. And I have to say that in terms of my own background, I've been at DePaul for five years, but before that I spent decades in the corporate world as a CIO and a CTO. So I've kind of seen both sides of that equation. And then also I like to point out to people, I'm, I'm a lot of things I say I'm biased. I say it openly. I'm a big consumer of educational products I spent a long time in college and I have some, you know, diplomas to hang on the wall to show for it. The last one I got was at DePaul last year. I got a master's in screenwriting, which has nothing to do with this technology, but it's kind of related because it's all storytelling. We're telling stories now, uh, which is important. So I, I'm a big consumer and now I stand in front of classrooms and I help teach and educate. And so uh, I have perspectives from multiple angles on this topic which is why it's, it's so important to me. So here are the things that started to catch my eye. Number one, you've probably heard a lot of the 100-year life and that with advances in nutrition, advances in medical science, more of us are gonna be living longer. And I think the, the comment here was, half of the kids born today will live to be 100 or older. Now, if they're going to live to be 100, and many of us will live uh, longer lives than our predecessors as well, and we're going to be healthy, so we're going to have good quality of life, not only longevity, we're going to want to be more productive, either because we enjoy working and we want to contribute, either out of financial necessity, maybe both. And so the old-fashioned notion, which I guess is the current notion, because legacy takes a while to shift, is that our careers were smaller. Here we're saying people can expect 60-year careers. And I think we all know that the idea of doing something day one of your career and at the end of 60 years, it's probably not going to be the same, especially in technology, which is what our focus is. I'm not talking about art history, or uh, which are all great topics, but in technology, so much is going to change. And so if you think of a 60-year career, how do you keep on making yourself relevant and fresh? And that's kind of the crux of the question. It's important for us as individuals. It's important for companies. It's important for society, and it's a global issue. It's not, of course, relegated to one geography or another. So what I like to tell people, whatever, however we choose to define it, and there are different definitions, continuous learning throughout our entire career 
uh, is critical and our careers are going to get longer and the learning windows are going to get smaller because things change so quickly. It's a great opportunity, but like so many other things, it's a great challenge. And since the title of this conference uh, has the word innovative in it because every, everything has to be innovative, in order to foster innovation, you've got to have continuous learning because the, again, focusing on technology, older ideas and technology, which might've had a good lifetime, they're constantly changing. And if you're gonna innovate, you're gonna do new things and new things require new ways of thinking and new learning. And the question is, how do we get there? Now, this isn't a new topic, continuous learning, but the reality and the constraints and the timeframes and the advances are new or newer. So great idea and now even more demanding and more challenging than it ever was. Now, the, the concept of a learning organization is also not a new concept. I remember reading many, many years ago, Peter Senge's work, uh, which people know about um, learning organizations and systems thinking and all that sort of stuff. And so, but more than ever, this is all directional as opposed to binary, more than ever, organizations have to be good learning organizations. And that doesn't just mean they're learning how to do their current stuff better, which is important. Uh, they're training new people on how to do what they do, that's important, but also learning new skills and new ways of doing things and taking advantages of new approaches and new technologies in more rapid timeframes with greater complexity, maybe greater risk. And so every organization, if they want to keep up, has to be a learning organization and they have to keep on raising their level of performance when it comes to learning. And so that's why it's a, a critical issue. Now, in organizations that are characterized by good innovation, they don't see learning as kind of a, a cost or, oh gee, we have to do that. They welcome it, they seek it out because they know that learning is a way of advancing. It helps to manage risk. I always remind people that risk is not something to be avoided, it's something to be managed because if you avoid it, you're not gonna go anywhere. And so the question is, how do you manage risk? And the thing is, well, you, and we all know there's gonna be a lot of failures, that's how you learn. If you, Hopefully you have more successes than failures because otherwise that's probably not a very good batting average. Uh, but the organizations will be more eager to learn than ever before. They use it as a way to manage risk and they wanna learn quickly. And quickly is a relative term, it depends on the subject, but that's another critical portion. So, what are people saying about people that are in the technical field? What are they saying about the need to learn new things? 65% of US workers said that learning new skills is extremely or very important factor in deciding whether to take a new job. I'm guessing that number, this is from this month, so it's fresh information, at least the, the article's fresh, the survey may be a little bit before that. And 61% said it's important to whether they stay at the current job. And so organizations are realizing this, that this is a big deal for technologists. And I think we've known for a long time, technologists don't just go from job to job because they get a bigger paycheck. Bigger paychecks are always nice, we know that. But it's really the opportunity to learn and the other intangible rewards that people will get. And so this is gonna be a big selling point. And it, it is a big selling point. What is my opportunity to learn and you corporation, how are you going to help me do this? Now, we all know the corporations are not going to spoon feed people. They have to uh, you meet them uh, halfway or somewhere in the middle, but it's an important selling point and it's only going to become more important as we go along. Now, here's another imperative why it's important to have this learning process. Whether you believe that half the jobs in the United States are gonna go away because of AI and automation or something less, you know, we, that, that's a topic for a different forum. But we know it's gonna shift. And the shift is gonna require relearning, reskilling, upskilling, retraining. 
So people have to figure out how radically it's going to change or they're going to have to do something else. And if they do something else, they have to learn a new skill. And the question is how and where and how fast are they going to do that? And who's going to give them guidance on how that works? Here's another thing, and I think us in technology understand this and we, we kind of live it so we don't maybe reflect on it so quickly. The obsolescence of knowledge and technology is quite rapid and it's not linear. It's not a linear curve, but it actually accelerates. And so this is from a couple of years ago, but I think that it's just going to get more accentuated. So if anybody ever reads Mary Meeker's Internet Reports, uh, which she, she does a great job of when she does them, she found that 50% of the freelancers that she studied or analyzed updated their skills within the past six months. So on the near term, on the near side, she's saying that a lot of people feel they have to refresh every six months. Does that mean they're learning a totally new programming language? No, but they're learning new frameworks, they're learning enhances of the programming languages, they're learning about new tools. We know how quickly things change. In another study from Pluralsight, they said, technology skills typically have a two-year half-life. Now, I also know, and having done this myself, I also know there's still COBOL programmers actively working. I programmed COBOL when I got out of college. So I know that that, that decay curve is, has a different slope, but that's not what the mainstay of our future is going to be. And so the relevance is shrinking. And as the, this was kind of an interesting uh, comment made for the president of the Singapore Institute of Technology who said, I don't care what you think, no amount of education is ever going to be enough. When you graduate, you don't graduate. That's continuous learning in a nutshell. One of the things I've led at Shop Runners is like this new venture strategic initiatives. And so our former boss and CEO was the founder of OkCupid and SparkNotes. And when he was the CEO of Match.com, they started Tinder. So he's a guy with a lot of ideas. It's great. But ideas distract companies a lot. So he's like, yeah. a and the executive team was like, uh, we need someone to take the noise that can cause disruption at leadership as well as at product teams and like channel it in a way that is both productive but also not distracting. And so for the last five years, amongst other things, that's been kind of part of my function and it's been a lot of fun. I don't know, I've learned a lot. Um, so I kind of laid this out as a couple of different elements, but I think all of these lend to that balance of how do you do innovative things? I think we're all entrepreneurial, we're in a tech entrepreneurial community um, and we're at companies at various stages and you want to keep doing things. If you're an early stage founder, like after you've started your first three sales and your first two products, you're already bored and you want to do the next thing. And so how do you do that without distracting? Because you do have quarterly meetings with your board. You have like, you know, KPIs, you have your bi-weekly spreads, you have real work that has to happen, yet you want to know what to do in blockchain, what you want to do in Web3 and other things. These are like five elements, I think, that are really important. If you don't have these five, I think like my, the way I say it is like you have a strategy team instead of an innovation team. Not that that's bad. Um, organization needs innovation and strategy. But if you are really missing some of these, you at some point end up with a different type of team with different outcomes. Um, so I'll go through each of these. Autonomy is really important. You cannot have a team that's like supposed to do innovation, but actually falls within product or falls within innovation because you have constraints. And like the long-term three to five to seven year thinking doesn't get prioritized because guess what? You have a meeting in two weeks. You have a product that has to get delivered to this quarter. So it needs to have autonomy to be effective. Um, the second year is diversity of background. It's like so important. My comment about like, do you have an innovation team or an incubation team or whatever you want to call it or a strategy team? It's like so, so important. If everybody in the room looks the same and has the same background, you have a strategy team. Very important for certain organizations to have a strategy team. You need someone that went to art school. You need someone that went to business school. You need someone that went to like, that is an engineer and loves it. You need someone that's a has a PhD in 
anything that's probably unrelated to business, like you need a diverse team to be thinking about broad concepts. And so really, really important on the second thing, um, just having a diverse set of skills. Um, again, really, really important. You need a budget. If every time you have to say to justify a project, you need to go back to the CFO and they say, what's the return on building a game in the metaverse? The answer is like, I have no idea, like zero or billions of dollars or somewhere in the middle. And so instead of having to have to go back, you need some kind of allocated budget, different sizes. Venture-backed company is going to be in the five, six-digit range. At FedEx, we have a lot more. But you need something dedicated so you don't have to go back to justify each specific decision that gets made. The other thing, again, back to the concept of not distracting the organization, you need a budget for third parties. Like every time I need something designed or put together, if I need to go back and have my design team do it, distracting the organization and not maybe the best use of resources. If I can hire a designer quickly for a week, for a sprint, for a month to supplement the team, it's an easy thing to justify 10, 15, $20,000. And so allocated budget's really, really important here. Principles and constraints are something that I would spend a lot of time because there's a lot to discuss. You can't have an innovation team that just does everything without any constraints. I have a visual in one of my like decks that I share with our new hires. It's like constraints are good because it shows a train going through mountains. And I was like, if you didn't have constraints, what would happen to this train? Like you need a track, you need like a place for people, you need a place for like the mountains. Like you need to have constraints. You can't do all things. And so I think about this a lot. Also just some principles that the team aligns on. If you don't have those, you're just going to running in a lot of different directions. And so those can be created, those can evolve, but you got to spend time on this. And the fifth is kind of administrative, but ideation, ideas versus concepts, incubation, innovation. At first it was new ventures and then became a strategic initiatives. It doesn't necessarily matter what you call it, but at some point internally, you got to define these things. You got to say what you are and what you're not. We have a uh, Historically, we've been the strategic initiatives team. Post-acquisition, we became the incubation team, which is fine. But then innovation, product innovation lives differently. And that's okay. But product innovation means next sprint, next quarter. It doesn't mean three to five years from now. So just be much really intentional about defining things. Because again, you'll, we'll talk about stakeholders in a second. If you're going to have broad stakeholder buy-in and they don't know if you're talking about product innovation or incubation, it's going to get confusing really quickly. So spending some time on these five is really, really important to set up a team to be, again, productive, but not distracting. There is a lot of value in creating process. It's like, it sounds kind of crazy, but for an incubation function, you're like, isn't that the opposite of process? You're supposed to be creative and out there and doing cool things and like being creative, which we do, but you have to have a place where this process lives. Like you're not going to get buy-in from anybody in an organization unless you have some sense of being able to report on where are the things you're working on in a process. All this is really meant to show is that we are taking a lot of ideas at the top of the funnel, taking them through a rigorous process. Many, many of the ideas you can see here, then kill 90% before they become proposals. Don't make it through the funnel. Like we do a lot of work, but it doesn't mean everything is going to end up being a focus of the business. What's most important here is like, we really only try to incubate two ideas a year. We probably look at a hundred things, all of venture capital for angel investing. Like you look at a lot, but you only do a few things. Um, Back to the idea of focus and making sure you're not being a distraction for the organization. If you're taking all of the things and you're doing 10 things and the company has two to three core products, it's a little unclear. Like, why are you focusing on so many other things? The board will ask hard questions as they should. So again, focusing on two things, running through a funnel and making sure you get rid of a lot of things along the way. The other thing I'll mention for us, we do PRFAQs. 
it stands for press release frequently asked questions. It's a fairly common like West Coast practice for innovation teams. Amazon used it and maybe popularized it, but other people do it as well. Every idea we um, run through ends up in a one-page press release. Future looking, this is step one. So when you say, okay, should we do this? Should we do something in Web3? Should we do something in blockchain? You're like, let's spend some time writing a one-page description of what is the future state. You are picking the place where it's being published. You are framing it as like with quotes from clients. You're spending time doing research to write what would the press release look like when our CEO goes out and says, Sharpener announces it's blank. And so um, in order to do that, you spend a lot of time thinking through every nuance of what would you want that to say? What would you not want it to say? What is your customer quote that gets you excited about the press release? What is the executive team going to say about it? What is an employee going to say about it? So all of these things that get built into one page. In theory, by reading this, you're saving a lot of time. Otherwise, you're spending three to four meetings with an executive team, introducing a concept to them. That takes a lot of time to make progress. If you can get it in one page efficiently, and the FAQs are like this, as you can imagine, frequently asked questions on a concept. Maybe that's page two and two and three. Five-minute read. People either get it or they don't. They like it or they don't. And it helps you get to decisions quickly. So if you're going to evaluate 100 things or 50 things, and you spend five minutes of an executive team time to look at it to determine if they're interested or not, a lot more efficient. One thing to spend some time on here, you got to get buy-in from all of your stakeholders and from leadership. This cannot be a thing that like, I think is a good idea. It like won't work. I won't be able to get anything done. I literally map out who are the key people that I need to get buy-in from across the organization. And then ultimately, who I want in my small team. When I say I want to spend a half a million dollars on this, who's the person that's going to be like, if this group says yes, I don't have to ask any more questions. It's a couple of key kind of C-suite individuals, a couple of VPs. There's a breadth of other stakeholders here. Like, if you don't have product people that are excited about incubation and they think it's a waste of time, like, that's a problem. So I have my team spend a lot of time internally just getting buy-in on process, answering questions. So spend a lot of time getting buy-in, getting support, more so at a large organization at FedEx than we did before, but it is still a really important part of our business. Do people like what we're doing? Are people excited about it? Do they want to see us keep doing this work or do they view it as a distraction? And if they start viewing it as a distraction, they don't come to the meetings, they don't provide you support, they don't provide you expertise. And a lot of the things we're building are for ultimately the product team to own. So if product and engineering views you as an enemy, distraction, isn't your friend, don't like you, it's a problem. So really important to get exec buy-in. The other thing I'll mention, our structure, and this is different for different companies, we have an hour every month with our executive team. An hour, 60 to 90 minutes. We go through the PRFAQs, we go through the funnel, we go through anything we need buy-in on related to big decisions. Should we fund this? Should we hire a third party to do this work? Any specific requests every single month. And my standard for my team, and I say this out loud, I say this in front of the meeting, I say, this should be the best meeting of the month. This is the CEO. This is the other C-suite. This is the head of technology. It's like, this isn't the best meeting of your month. Like, tell me. Like, I want my team to be that good. So every month we have a combination of things that we deliver. It should be exciting. It should be interesting. It should feel strategic. It should feel relevant. Some of it should feel exploratory. When you go home to your partner, I want you to talk about this meeting this week or this weekend, right? That's the standard. Um, you don't have a lot of time with executives who are focusing on quarterly earnings and month to month and sprints. So you want to make sure it's really valuable and they look forward to it. They don't reprioritize, they don't schedule over it, like it doesn't happen. So we try to do a really good job of keeping that standard. One more section, we're kind of getting to this, like where does innovation fall for product? Is it market driven? At the end of the day, we do a lot of work. 
the influence is in a lot of places for the organization. It can be a product enhancement. You're like, well, don't you need to work on the product team for that? A PRFAQ starts with something really exciting. At ShopRunner, we were trying to do something. We said, hey, listen, we have two-day shipping and free returns. We have certain brands that don't want to put things on planes. They're very eco-conscious. It's just not lined with their values and their brand, Patagonia being one of the most important ones. Like we can have a meeting with the CEO. They can love everything we do and they would never sign a deal with us. How do we overcome that? The market for ShopRunner, two-day shipping, free returns, enough scale is probably 500 retailers. And if 3% of them literally do not want to do this, how do we do something that's different for that? So we talked about like we could create a new market that was like an eco-conscious market that provided like double impact or something. Kind of interesting, but then you're like, well, it's not that many retailers that want to do this. So you're 20, 30 retailers. So like, oh, what if we had the option of downgrading your shipping options in order to double your impact on whatever you're doing? So for, you know, environmental issues for Patagonia, we're like, we can have instead of a 1% give back, we can have a 2% give back, but you don't get fast shipping, you get slow shipping kind of interesting. So ultimately, we kind of tested a bunch of things that were like eco options within the shop owner network as opposed to a fast and free option. And so those are more product enhancements, right? So those things ultimately became things that the product team had to decide about and think about, even though the research started with, uh, let's create a new network of the future of like Gen Z shopping. That wasn't going to be the thing we did. So my point is only that a lot of things we ultimately think about do land in different places. Like this is thought leadership. We were doing a lot of work on blockchain and loyalty, including spending time on the West Coast, talking about a $100 million fund to do some kind of shop owner across retail or loyalty program. Not necessarily because it was the right thing for us to do. We ultimately decided not to pursue it. But Neiman Marcus's CEO is asking us questions. What should we do about blockchain and loyalty? And when you're like, Good question. We don't know. That's problematic. If you're expected to be their technology partner, their thought leader, you got to have answers to some of these questions. And so should we accept Bitcoin or not? Like, these are good questions. We, it's nice to have an answer to that or at least some thinking behind that. So again, a lot of the work ends up in different places. Not everything ends up being a new product for a new set of industry or a new business line that kind of evolves. Like It can be a lot of different things. So it's really important for this to be known because if leadership thinks everything is over here, and you only deliver a few things over here in the next six months, they're like, is innovation doing anything? It's a good question if you're spending a lot of money on it. So just understanding that the outcomes can vary is really important. We hope you enjoy these highlights. Don't forget, we have our next summit coming up on September 3rd at the OLC Education and Conference Center in beautiful Rosemont, Illinois. You won't wanna miss it, so get your tickets early. If you wanna learn more about the Innovative Executives Elite, the events we host, or any of these innovative leaders, check out our LinkedIn page or visit our website for more information. We also want to thank our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us today. If you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32.